When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. People have seen things in the skies that they can't explain for as long as we've been looking up. Some even claim to have had close encounters with beings whom they believe are extraterrestrial. I've had some odd experiences myself. When some friends and I were in a strawberry patch one summer evening in the late 1980s, I saw two lights in the sky that were behaving in a strange fashion. There is no way that what I was looking at were fireflies, helicopters, satellites, or swamp gas. They were definitely something controlled and very fast-moving, maneuvering in ways that I'm fairly certain had no earthly aircraft can yet achieve. I don't know what it was, but I saw something. Aliens. UFOs. For the majority of the 20th century and well into the 21st, the topic of possible extraterrestrial visitations have been relegated to the realms of science fiction and wackos. On October 30, 1938, nine years before the Roswell incident, Orson Welles' Mercury Theater radio play of H.G. Wells' book, War of the Worlds, hit the airwaves. The first two-thirds of the 60-minute broadcast were presented as a series of news bulletins, often described as having led to outrage and panic by listeners who believed the events described in the program to be real. Reports about the reactions to the broadcast were also much exaggerated in the news, claiming the panic was more widespread than it actually was. This perceived hoax did a lot of damage to the public's opinion of the veracity of reports of aliens. Wells, Orson, not H.G., unwittingly played a part that, since the broadcast, has led many to look at reports of unidentified flying objects as hogwash and not to be believed. The United States government's denials of what happened at Roswell and their disinformation campaign that followed very much contradicted what eyewitnesses had seen and touched at the site. Another example is Project Blue Book, the code name for the systematic study of unidentified flying objects by the United States Air Force from March 1952 to its termination on December 17, 1969. Project Blue Book had two goals, namely to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. But UFO enthusiasts and those willing to dig into the final report believe it was a massive effort to simply debunk, very unscientifically in some cases, sightings of what still cannot be entirely understood even today. Their motive? Perhaps the masses, us, are too weak-minded to accept that there may be life on other planets and that they've come to visit. The thought that there are entities with access to technologies and actual power beyond what our governments can provide would send the world into chaos. But would it? There seems to be a change afoot. It appears that after evidence of some not easily explainable sightings like those of the fast-moving tic-tac-shaped crafts reported by naval pilots in 2015 have led to people looking at things in a different way. Quote, Look at that thing, dude! One pilot shouted in a declassified recording made during one of the 2015 sightings. Oh my gosh, there's a whole fleet of them. They're going west against the wind. The wind's 120 knots west. End quote. Even the U.S. government has had to admit they want to look at things in a different way. Morgan will talk a little bit more about that in a few seconds. But in the second week of June, this June, just now, 
NASA announced that they are commissioning a study team to start early in the fall to examine unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, UFOs here in Canada. That is, observations of events in the sky that cannot be identified as aircraft or known natural phenomena, and all of this from a scientific perspective. The study will focus on identifying available data, how best to collect future data, and how NASA can use that data to move the scientific understanding of UAPs forward. Well, that sounds like some progress to me. The only way forward is with an open mind, after all. Our guest in this episode, filmmaker John Yost, will talk to us about his own encounters with things otherworldly. He tackles the subject and how his own very real experiences as a child affected the rest of his life in his recent feature documentary film, Alien Abduction, Answers. The film stars Yost and Whitley Strieber, author of Communion, an outspoken alien abductee. But first, here's Morgan with more on this episode's topic. In May 2022, the House of Representatives Subcommittee on Intelligence and Counterterrorism gathered to discuss unidentified aerial phenomena. The lengthy, rather dry discussion was actually something quite unique. The rare congressional hearing about UFOs, the first in more than 50 years. Now, this sounds like it should be something insanely exciting and an event that the general public should be tuning into like their personal sports team was in the playoffs, right? Right? The hearing featured testimony and examination of both the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security and the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, in which they described unidentified flying objects which had entered into our airspace. These weren't military airships, as the government has often said. They didn't know what they were or where they came from. In fact, they may be a threat, as they went on to explain. So, what about the aliens? Pretty sure that's the question on everybody's mind right now. Well, aliens were indeed mentioned, but only to say they had no proof of their existence. So in short, we're right back to the usual story. Out of 400 disclosed reports, they came to the conclusion they had no actual proof of alien life and left it at that. This meeting was meant to check in on the progress of a task force that the Department of Defense formed in 2020 to detect, analyze, and catalog UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena that could potentially pose a threat to U.S. national security. It had nothing to do at all with disclosing a thing. Something the UFO community, as well as people who have claimed to have encounters with these strange creatures, are all too familiar with. Aliens, for me, have never been something at the top of my radar, because my main field of work and interest lies in parapsychology and the study of consciousness after death. Unlike Mike, I've never had an up-close and personal encounter with a suspected gray or any UFO sightings I couldn't explain. But as studies of consciousness and alien life have now begun to blur, the subject of aliens and perception of them is creeping into my field of vision in the form of egregores, universal consciousness, and our own beliefs about whether they exist. Speaking with ufologists, I'm always interested in the fact that so many of the experiences the abductees report are often things highly documented in parapsychology, but under a different name. What meditators would call an OBE, or out-of-body experience, people interested in UFOs call them a possible abduction. The lifting of oneself off a bed, levitation, floating towards a bright light, a feeling of either peace or fear coming over them, and seeing entities they can't explain gets labeled differently between the two subject matters and yet overlap consistently. Many people experiencing what they relate to as alien encounters often say they would feel someone following them when no one was there or seeing something out of the corner of their eye that felt as if it had a presence. Many in the field of parapsychology would perhaps consider this a sign of a spiritual presence, where many in the UFO field would label this a sign that aliens might be among us. I began to realize that often many of the messages received from people who have participated with both channeling sessions, where an individual believes they are receiving from a broader consciousness, as well as those who believe they are interacting with aliens, are often interpreting similar messages. Things such as positive messages about the planet and personal messages that focus on the idea that we are all connected leave many who encounter these entities with a feeling of being watched over and looked after. 
where things seem to stop lining up is that aliens seem to occasionally take a bad turn, with encounters leaving people terrified, paranoid, and in some cases, physical pain with leftover injuries and scars. This is something not seen in parapsychology with encounters of near-death experiences and things of that nature, so this seems to be where similarities come to a grinding halt. However, what is fascinating to me was the experiencer's journey. Parapsychology is about people, and ufology is really no different, which is something that I had not considered before. If the government doesn't disclose a lick about aliens ever, does it matter? FBI documents, which surfaced recently from their own government website known as The Vault, implied directly there were aliens among us already, and that they kept to themselves in hopes that they would go completely unnoticed by mankind. That was years ago now. Haven't heard about them? Well, you're not alone. Strangely, these documents have barely made local news, let alone national or international. Is it just that no one cares and we've been fed so many inflated news stories over the last number of years that people have simply tuned extreme stories out completely? Are people just burnt out? Or is it something else? Is it that it's less about proof of aliens and more about the people themselves who have claimed to experience them? I personally think aliens in some form exist. You can't take a cup of water, dip it in the ocean, look for sharks in the cup and then claim there are no sharks at all. At this point, we barely know what makes up our universe, so to assume we know what is and isn't seems exceptionally ignorant. Now, whether or not these beings are indeed greys or reptiles or floating clouds of ether is up for debate in a huge way. And interestingly enough, each description of these aliens tends to be geographically different. Where the Western world often reports greys, encounters in South America are often involving animal-looking beings. Culturally, encounters reflect the people involved in them. Now, does that mean they are all in people's heads? No. What it may mean, however, is that we experience and translate energy using imagery we already have experienced, meaning our brains are using reference imagery to explain itself what it is it happens to be seeing. Belief, expectation, and age all seem to play a role in how we interpret the world and in what we see. As you will hear from Mike in the show, he related his odd encounter with a creature during a sleepover to the likeness of Spider-Man, a small creature with a round head and large Spider-Man eyes. In parapsychology, many reports have been given over the years of people seeing an apparition of a loved one at, a, at the same time, and yet all report him to be a different age or wearing different clothing, even though all were in agreement it was a particular person they had seen. So the question becomes... How much is our own view of the world and our own expectations influencing encounters with aliens or what we perceive to be aliens? It's a big question. As we drift into the realm of quantum physics and begin to fully understand the implications of the observer effect, where one cannot look at something or measure it without altering its outcome, we have no choice but to apply this to the field of ufology as well. Dr. David Halperin, author of The Intimate Alien, believes that this is in fact a huge portion of the UFO and alien journey. In the late 1960s, Halperin was a teenage ufologist, convinced that flying saucers were real and that it was his life's mission to solve their mystery. He would become a professor of religious studies with traditions of heavenly journeys, his specialty. From the prehistoric Balkans to the deserts of New Mexico, from the biblical versions of Ezekiel to modern abduction encounters, his book, Intimate Alien, traces the hidden story of the UFO. It's a human story from beginning to end, no less mysterious and fantastic for its earthliness. A cultural dream, UFOs transport us to the outer limits of that most alien yet intimate frontier, our own inner space, as David has said. Does this explain the increase in UFO sightings, and particularly that of greys since the Betty and Barney Hill incident? Could it be that our expectations alter our experiences of alien life, just as it does in our own everyday and paranormal world? Physics say yes, and if that is the case, does proof of alien life from the government really matter? If our own perception and expectation is determining the outcome of our experiences, what does that mean for aliens? Perhaps there is a bigger question here that isn't about belief at all, but rather, what does our own desire for knowledge, for more, for an understanding of consciousness mean to each of us. 
Robert Bigelow, former owner of the famed Skinwalker Ranch in the Unitaw Basin, as well as the founder of Bigelow Airspace, the National Institute of Science, and BICS, the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies, had those same questions on his mind. So much so, he launched an essay contest for the best proof of non-physical consciousness the best minds in science could muster. One by Jeffrey Mishlove for his works Beyond the Brain, The Survival of Human Consciousness After Permanent Bodily Death, received a $500,000 prize. Despite these attempts by many to understand the nature of human consciousness, and perhaps aliens as well, we can't help but circle back on ourselves and our own nature of perception. It's easy to criticize those who have had experiences different from our own, and we see this in global formats as well, specifically when one culture is exposed to another, which we feel we don't understand. A difference in perception is often hard for people to grapple with because it means taking an inner look at our own complications and difficulties. It is just easier often to deny, dismiss, or diminish another's experience because we are too lazy or too frightened to examine it any closer. But if we are interested in anything beyond what we can inherently see with our limited and relatively tiny frame of reference for our current world, this mode of thinking is just not functional. Simply dismissing thousands of reports of experiences is not the scientific method. Whether we believe in aliens or not, the experience means something, even if it's not our own, and the dismissal of the experience of others begin to ride a rocky road into a place of little empathy. I found it interesting when listening to the stories of those who had experienced a haunting as a child, as well as those who have claimed abduction, Many children were told not to tell or told that they were embarrassing their parents. The trauma in their faces was similar to children who had undergone various forms of abuse and told to keep their mouths shut for whatever reason. Fear, upset of the family unit, embarrassment, or other reasons that meant nothing to the child and everything to the parent. Many of these individuals had lived with these secrets for decades, and as you'll hear with our guest, John Yost, secrets kill. They kill your spirit, your joy, and your trust in others. So, still don't believe in aliens? Or maybe you're just on the fence. Or maybe, like so many others, you've had your own experience of missing time, strange lights in the sky, or opening your eyes to meet a being you didn't expect. Whatever your story is, the external validation from a government agency may never truly come or be acknowledged in a format we'd wish. And like many other experiences in the paranormal, the one thing I have learned from speaking with those who have experienced these incredible things is that everyone's journey means something different to them. And there is a courage needed to pursue it that requires a stout heart and a willingness to find answers, even when those answers are in the darkest and deepest places many of us fear. Maybe the greatest question that needs to be asked is not, in fact, are there aliens, but rather, who are we? And if what's out there reflects what's in here, what am I meant to discover? Next up is our interview with John Yost. Let's have a listen. John, so glad that that you were able to be with us this afternoon. Um, you're as Mike was saying, I I also saw the documentary. It was absolutely fascinating. And you brought up some such interesting questions uh, in regards to this amazing phenomenon of, of aliens and alien abduction and what this is. And one of the things I think that stuck out to Mike and I right off the bat was the, the quote you had at the beginning, one in every 50 people, according to a Roper poll, has might have been abducted which really stuck out to us. Can you talk a bit about that? Certainly. Um, it's, it's one of the things that blew my mind and yet gave me some comfort when I started to do research about this topic was that there were so many people that had responded to that poll and had said that they had some sort of encounter or some sort of abduction encounter. And, and if you notice, it was a few years ago. So I'm thinking to myself, it's got to have expanded since then. One of the things that I have discovered uh, through my research is this. A lot of people publicly poo-poo this whole subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And um, and I understand, and sometimes that can be very, very critical, uh, harshly so. I was dealing with a, one researcher, uh, Ray Hernandez, and he had a suggestion for me. He said, listen, grab a hundred of your closest friends and relatives and ask them all if they've ever had something happen to them that they just can't explain. He said, you'll find out that in every one of those samplings, a majority of people have one thing that's happened to them in their life. He said, that opens the, the door for this discussion. The whole point of this refusal to deal with it is usually wrapped up in ignorance and fear, both of those intimately intertwined. And it is the destruction of our ego that is the most difficult thing. You know, every day, the sun comes up in the east and it goes down in the west. We drive to work. We have that same cup of coffee. We yell at that same colleague. <laughs> We love the same people, and we know how to control our life. Even if things are happening that are maybe uh, distasteful, we still understand them. They fall under the umbrella of our experience. But anything that is too deep, the water too deep to swim in, we become instantly fearful and we strike out. It's so interesting that you say that because I, being my background in, in parapsychology, I've, I've found that as well, where people are... All, that that fear turns into just shutting the subject down completely. And no matter how much at that point you offer them in terms of, of evidence or anything like that, they've just completely shut down. And it's because it's a, it's a piece of the world that they can't process. Mm -hmm. I usually ask people this question. I say, listen, has this ever happened to you? Ever, ever been staring at somebody and they turn around and they look back at you? Or have you ever felt like somebody has been looking at you and you turn around and you see them? Or have you ever been thinking about somebody and they call you? I said, if consciousness is local, if it's only in your head, then those things can't happen. They're impossible. And on top of that, they can't happen universally. Because almost every single person I've ever spoken to has had one of those phenomena happen to them. I had one today, <laughs> you know. There you are. Now, I was uh, thinking about a friend of mine, and uh, um, they're in a different time zone than myself. And so they would have been, it would, it would be the middle of the night when I was thinking of them. And so I just sent them a message, said, thinking about you. And instantly it came up red, and it's like, yeah, I really need to talk. Wow. It was like, wow, the, the timing was amazing. And uh, I see that over and over and over again. And I think it's a matter of being open to it. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. When, when you were going through the building this documentary and you're, you're reading hundreds of these people's encounters and, you know, you're doing the research for this, what were, what were you thinking going through going through these stories, like what was going through your head? Mm, what kind of editors do you have? Because the kind <laughs> of language I want to use right now, um, God, I was afraid. See, these, these memories had been with me my entire life and I had lied about them. It wasn't one of these things where it was, they were reclaimed memories. Something happened to me on another job, a completely different job that forced me into a position where I could no longer lie anymore. I'd lied for over 45 years about my experiences. And I know that's a long preamble to answer your question. The thing that struck me was this. I juxtaposed these examples and these cases against what was being said publicly. You know, there are these kind of umbrella statements that, you know, I'll make them up. Uh, all the grays are bad or, you know, people are being abducted for this or they're reptilians or whatever. As you can see, my encounter was completely different. There are so many, and as you see from the, the, the film, the, the people that I chose to share with us had vastly different experiences. These are partially because of maybe different sources. You know, unfortunately, we love to generalize and put things in boxes. It is impossible for us to determine exactly the sources of these. And they can't all just be from one source. I use a little example of Elon Musk going to Mars in the film to you know, illustrate that idea. As much as they were the same, they were different. And that, uh, that also, because of its lack of uh, uniformity, 
is something difficult for you to wrap your arms around and adds to the discomfort. That makes sense. And, you know, it's it, it's so interesting because uh, when after both Mike and I saw the documentary, it, re- it really stuck out to us your specific description of of what you saw. Um, can you tell the, the audience a little bit about that? Because I'm sure most people will be seeing the documentary, but haven't yet. Um, because I think you and Mike have something to talk about with, with, with this experience. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah. Um, when I was a boy of seven, uh, it was 1974 in August. It was a hot summer evening. And um, I was awakened from a deep sleep and I felt this kind of vibration, this kind of undulating tone or hum in the room. And I couldn't get back to sleep. And I sat up and I rubbed my eyes and went to the bathroom and had some water and the water ran for a very long time and i don't know why but then after that i I turned it off and i i opened the door of the bathroom and to my eyes there standing there in a hallway was a japanese television character at the time called ultraman and um ultraman in the television show was a it was a giant and he was very silver and strong and he had powers and these, these gigantic almond eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid. This was very familiar to me. The only difference was is that Ultraman was my size mm-hmm. and I'm seven at the time. And uh, we got very, very close. And I, I didn't feel fear until that last moment when our noses were almost touching it felt i've described it this way as though you're at a swimming pool and you can touch the bottom and the water is just underneath your chin but then all of a sudden it slips down to the very deep and you slip underneath and you lose control then i became very fearful at that point i began to struggle physically with this thing entity him whatever and uh, there was a brilliant flash of light and a kaleidoscope of colors. I, I described it a couple of different ways of being on a carousel that was out of control or looking at a window of a bullet train. And then when I finally came to my wits, I, I ended up on the other side. My back was no longer in the bathroom. Ultraman's back was in the bathroom. And I was standing with my back to a set of stairs and i was in mid struggle i for me no time had passed and as i'm struggling with this ultraman character he reached out with his right hand touched my left shoulder and there was a tremendous amount of power i don't know energy heat uh, electricity i can't explain it but it threw me down the stairs I, I felt buffeted down the stairs and they were hardwood and it was very very painful when i got to the bottom of the stairs I let out a howl. You know, I'm a little boy and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. And my parents come rushing from their first floor bedroom to find their young son at the bottom of the floor and bottom of the stairs screaming. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm saying there's, you know, Ultraman upstairs. And my father hears, I guess, you know, intruder and he runs up the stairs and checks behind doors and closets and there's no one there. And they uh, take me to bed and they do what parents do. They look underneath the the bed and show you there's nothing there and there's nothing in the closet. The next day I was out playing with my friends. It was summer break and uh, I came in and my mother said, oh, for goodness sake, you need a, a bath before we have dinner. And, you know, I'm a seven-year-old boy, so I'm struggling. You know, I don't want to. And she takes off my t-shirt and she sees the bruises and then she sees the, the mark on my arm, my shoulder. And she says, honey, what's this? And I told her, I said, Mom, I told you that Ultraman was in my room. She looked sad, kissed me on the head, said everything will be okay, everything will be okay. A few days later, my father was taking me to the doctor. And as we pulled into the parking lot, he looked back at me, and he was a gruff man, uh, mill worker, tough guy, big guy. And he said, now listen, when we get in there, I don't want to hear any of this Ultraman bullshit. You keep that to yourself. So the doctor gave me a cursory exam, checked make sure there were no broken bones and he was looking at my bruises that were healing when he got to my shoulder he said hey sporta well what's this i could see my father glaring at me from the corner and uh, you know i mean this is 1974 so it was a different time you didn't cross your dad then <laughs> and so uh i said oh I, I i i don't know i just got hurt playing 
And he gave me a lollipop, patted me on the head, sent me out. Mm. When my father took me home as we pulled into the driveway, he again asserted his power over me and said, listen, I don't want you to scare your mother and I don't want you to scare your sisters. You keep that Ultraman to yourself. I never want you to talk about it again. And so for the rest of my life, I began lying. And I lied about it so many times it became secondhand. I know you wear eyeglasses, you know, and in the morning you don't say to yourself, you know, I am going to put on my glasses. No, you just put them on. Mm -hmm. So every time anybody mentioned it, you know, I was very active in sports and, you know, in the locker room, hey, what happened there? Oh, I got bitten by a bear. I got shot. A shark bit me, you know, whatever. Anything would have been better than to tell them that I had been abducted. It's such a impactful story. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me when I heard you tell that story in in the documentary was the impact of being told you don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. Because it was it it stuck out to me because to me, I think that is so indicative of so many kids' traumas, you know, whether it be bullying or molestation or you know all of the all of these different factors like kids that have struggled with exactly that and then you couple it with this experience that you were wrestling with that there was no context really that that you could put it into Uh, to me that was that was the most striking thing about this story how as you move through your experience how did that impact you it poisons you yeah um it, it it poisons everything it touches. I mean, when you when you live with, you know, if you compound your stress and uh, your trauma with lying, it, it poisons your relationships. It poisons your work. It poisons mm-hmm. your friendships. It um it makes you a different person than you would have been, uh, and you never feel that you can completely be open with anyone. And so that's very difficult, you know, especially you know with a life partner and that sort of thing. So it's um. Yeah, that's so it's very difficult. Absolutely. I've had a few experiences myself, and and the reason that your Ultraman description really stood mm-hmm. out to both Morgan and I is I've mentioned this on the show before, so it's not the mm-hmm. first time that she's hearing about it, and we've talked w- with other guests about this. When um, I was staying overnight, and I was probably seven or eight years old, similar age to you, uh, in the seventies. And uh, I'm staying overnight at uh, a neighbor's place and sleeping in the, in the neighbor's bed. Uh, it was a big double bed. You know, kids sleep together in a bed when they sleep over. And I'm laying on my side and I have this feeling uh, a lot similar to what you said. Uh, there was like a weird feeling in the air, like a static or something odd. And I opened my eyes, laying on my side, looking um, off the side of the bed. And there standing beside the bed was this thing. uh, And its head was just peeking up over, I could see it's just the top of its shoulders, its neck, and its head. And the head was sort of shaped like what I thought looked like Spider-Man. And I thought it had Spider-Man eyes. Uh, because of that, that almond shape that you described with your Ultraman thing. And my experience wasn't as dramatic as yours because I, I don't remember feeling afraid. I remember thinking I should be afraid, but I didn't feel afraid. Uh, but, um, then for some reason the experience ended and I woke up the next morning. I don't know what happened between when I realized this, I had seen this thing. And so I just put it off to, did I fall asleep? And, uh, I mentioned to my friend, I saw Spider-Man in your room last night. (laughs) And my young friend, same age as me said, you're crazy. And then I mentioned it to my mom and dad and they, they would not remember this because it wasn't important to them. (laughs) You know, it wasn't, it didn't have the impact that it did on, uh, them as it did me. And, and mom and dad were just like, ah, whatever. But hearing these different stories, and uh, when I saw when I saw my first uh, picture of a gray or whatever is supposed to be a gray, I thought, 
is that what I saw? And my brain transposed Spider-Man's face onto this thing because that's how I understood at that time. Mm. Does this make any sense to you at all? Well, certainly. And, and you'll recall that in the film, we talk about screen memories. Mm -hmm. In fact, Whitley does quite a nice job uh, treating that issue, how it you know protects us from that trauma that we might not be able to handle. And also it's an invitation, you know, can we explore it? Do we have the guts, the strength, the soul to explore it? Instead of retreating, do we move forward? Mm. Yeah. So I, uh, I completely resonate with what you're saying. And I'm certain that, um, that if you decided to explore that in some depth, you could probably find some answers if that's what you wanted. Person I would suggest wholeheartedly is the woman who helped me. Debs. Deb Shakti, yes. Yeah. Yeah. She has a global practice and is um, world renowned. She's such a, uh, and also such a good, genuine person. Uh, I, I often refer to her as a guardian angel, and I, I sincerely mean that with no hyperbole. So you, you feel like um, your sessions with her really helped you to put this in a place that you could better understand what it was, or uh, what was that experience like for you to, to deal with her? Sure. Well, I was scared to death, mm. first of all. Uh, I mean, remember that, that all of these feelings that I was having, I mean, they had all been inside me all these years. My team and I, we were, um, we were on a shoot out in the middle of the desert, Borrego Springs, California. It's very flat, very arid. And uh, we were on a night shoot and we had come back to the place that we were staying, this huge ranch house. And there were about 15 people with us. We were downloading all the footage and uh, we're sitting out by the pool having a, uh, a nightcap. So people are about to pour that nightcap, and I raise my glass. Somebody's going to give a toast. And I see this glint in my glass, and, and my mind is struggling. Like, where, where's that coming from, you know? I said, oh, that must be the moon. And then I realized, wait a minute, we, there is no moon. This is new moon. This is totally black sky. Mm. And as I pull down my glass, I see about 30 feet away from me, and about 30 feet in the air, um, this kind of oblong, almost egg-shaped thing. And uh, it was uh, blue-gray, I'm mean, sorry, blue-green, and it had its own luminosity. It was going from inside and it cast a shadow. And I was speechless. I said, oh my God. And I grabbed my cameraman who was right beside me and I turned him around and he, see, and he says, oh my God, and just then, all the other people who were with us, they all turned and they saw this thing. It was as big as a Volkswagen. Wow. And, and I could have hit it with a baseball, easily could have mm. hit it with a baseball. This thing moves lightning fast in a zigzag uh, motion and freezes right above my head. And I thought I was going to die. Mm. It freezes there, I don't know for how long, but a split second. And then it zigzags away a little bit, and then it slowly drifts off into the desert. My mind is racing. I'm trying to think, is this a Mylar balloon? You know, those get well balloons. Sure. sure. Yeah. But it was so big, and it moved so fast, um, I knew it wasn't. And so at this point in my life, I had continued that lie for so many years. And so nobody knew anything about me. Mm-hmm. And so um, I started to have that feeling about the world slipping away from me. Yeah. And so I, uh, I took a sip of my glass and uh, coughed a little bit and uh, said, well, you know, my polite goodnights and went back and barricaded myself right. in my room Yeah. because I was petrified. One of the things that Morgan asked me about, you know, how did that, you know, play out in my life? Well, what happened was when, that kind of knock on my door, if you will, mm -hmm. occurred. All of those feelings that I had kept and all of those lies that I had put out there came rushing back to me like a waterfall. But they didn't come back to me as a 50-plus-year-old man. They came to me as a 7-year-old boy mm -hmm. yeah. without the defenses of a life and experience to protect me. And so I was terrified. 
But imagine that part of you just remains unhealed, uh-huh. you know, because it was never addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As we're talking about this, I, <laughs> I'm kind of feeling a bit of a, a tightness in my chest. I'm not having a heart attack or anything like that, but uh, <laughs> I'm feeling that, oh dear, this is something that maybe I should probably explore a little more and I'm yeah. pretty frightened of doing so. Well, to continue this and to help you with that. So we, I realized through my research and talking to all these people and having these interviews something that should have been so obvious to anyone, especially me, is that, wait a minute, even though my entire memory is clear, how did I switch places with this entity? How, what, what happened there? How did that? And so that became the crux of my, my search, and I needed mm-hmm. to know, and there was only one way to get to that, and that's how I found Debs. And so what I, I have to tell you, I, like almost anyone, I probably, I, I had all of my doubts and I kind of, you know, I thought, you know, this little girl is never going to be able to hypnotize, you know, a big old guy like me and all this stuff, you know, all the crap you tell yourself. And so we had had a couple of sessions prior to the one that's on the film just to see if I could go under and make sure that I would be able to go deep enough and whatever. And what she assured me was this, is that, I would be doing all the work. All she was going to do was teach me to relax enough so I could look in my library to the right filing cabinet drawer that I had locked this stuff in. And so that session that you see in the film is raw. It has not been dubbed. It has not been edited. It is raw. And you are watching me relive this as a seven-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. It was traumatic, but I will tell you this, that the uh, relief that you will feel is, um, is palpable, and, and, it, and it will help you. It will not cure you, and it will not heal you, mm-hmm. but it will help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mike, it sounds like you've got a, I've got something you've to got do. some decisions to think about. Yeah. That it's it's so it's so impactful for me to hear these stories because I I've never, as far as I know, have had a specifically like an an alien type of experience. But I, I've noticed the more I'm talking to people like you, John, and to other people who have had similar experiences, I, I've noticed a, a very interesting overlap between parapsychology and ufology and especially in the areas of things like out-of-body experiences um near-death experiences and and things like that where people will you know have these have these experiences where they feel like they're being lifted out of their bed um and 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 stuff like that did you find that as well when you were doing some of your research i have to concur with you morgan the more i delved into this the more i was confused because I kept getting these overlaps and I didn't understand, I, you know, and, and the reason was is because I had a preconceived notion. Right. I was going after Ultraman. Mm-hmm. And as right. we all know, I, I was wrong. Um, and so, so many people, when they try to wrestle with this idea, they have a preconceived notion. They have that, okay, I'm dealing with people from Venus or I'm dealing with uh, Dracos or Tall White or whatever they think, okay? And this is the end point for them. The problem is, is that we need to take the evidence as it comes and let it lead us, not us lead it. And what I have discovered is that consciousness itself is primary. It is the fabric of the universe. Yeah. So we're all swimming in it. We're all, the reason that, that little thing we were laughing about earlier about the phone call in the middle of the night is because we're all receivers of this information, mm-hmm. just like an AM radio. Absolutely. And if we tune ourselves, we can pick up that signal. Now, that signal is always there. Mm-hmm. And it's occupied by different minds at different times. And this is another reason why we get different messages, because the voices are changing. Some of our tuning in is to a specific channel at a specific time, at a specific frequency. And that's why we have repetitive messages sometimes. But all of these entities, regardless of their 
development technologically. They live in the same soup that we live in. The difficulty that people have is that they believe that we're all dealing with one source. And I have to say, this doesn't make any sense. The evidence leads me to this, that we're dealing with four different sources. The first source is, yes, we are dealing with some sort of technology that our and many other governments have been playing with for many, many years. And now that all these lies are coming out and press conferences are happening, these people who said, no, it's never been studied, are now having to admit that, yes, in fact, they have had a deep interest in it. Yeah. So there's technology that we just don't understand that our governments have been using. So that accounts for some of this. There's also another thing an ancient sort of intelligence that has lived on this earth simultaneously with us. We used to refer to it as um, people of the forest or elves or pixies. This is a sort of memory or consciousness that the planet itself has. And we have been interacting with it since our history began. And some of that and some of these lights and some of this contact is with that. The third source is, yes, in some of these cases, we are dealing with nuts and bolts, cats from Venus. You know, we're sending, we, um, you know, Americans, uh, you know, uh, Europeans, Canadians, we're, we're sending probes everywhere. And we're, what do we do when we get there? Well, we, well, son of a gun, we take samples, don't we? Mm. And if we could put people in there, we would send them too. And then what would they do? Well, they would study and take samples and build things and and if there were living things there, we would take them and sample them. So this is an absolute commonality amongst us and in our own paradigm. But when we think about it and we are no longer the top of the food chain, how that could never happen. Mm-hmm. How right. arrogant, how yeah. arrogant. Yeah. And then last of all, we're somehow dealing with, people have termed it ultra-terrestrial. I don't understand that term. But what I will say is that there is a sort of over-intelligence, some sort of consciousness that is above and beyond ours, that somehow has the technology or the power of their soul to press into our dimension, somehow have contact with us, and then retract and disappear entirely. People have a very difficult time with that last one. But I would say this, two things. We have named that entity or those minds God and angels and demons from the beginning of time. And I would say this to all the scoffers out there. Think if Morgan and I were standing beside a, a fish tank and I put my face into the fish tank, literally pushing my face past the line, the demarcation that separates the plane of existence of those fish to us. Now that fish sees my face. It's totally unlike anything it's used to. It moves in an entirely strange way. And that fish has no concept that the face is attached to a head, attached to a neck, attached to a body that's autonomous, that has an entire life outside the existence of the fish. He's just mesmerized. And when I pull my face out, I instantly disappear magically. That fish tells his friends, come here, come here, you've got to see this. The fish see, there's no evidence. And so they all scoff at their friend because he just doesn't exist. Hmm. This is, this is the ego in play and what we are dealing with on that level. Hmm. Well, it's really it's a really interesting concept. I, I think the um, I, I I think one of the things that stands out to me is uh, in in parapsychology, there's a philosopher by the name of David Chalmers, and David Chalmers had uh, come up with what they call the hard problem, which is is consciousness fundamental or emergent? And mm-hmm. ever since I think the beginning of parapsychology, this has been one of the the, the biggest debates with, as to whether this was fundamental or emergent but you brought up something about um uh, of course Whitley Strieber uh talking about um folklore and how 
they used to describe these things as as fairies and pixies and and things like that. And it just, it kind of developed from there. And it brought back a uh, memory of a conversation that Mike and I had with uh, Dr. Lynn McNeil, who's a folklorist. And we were talking at the time about the Jersey Devil in a previous episode. And uh, she said something that was really interesting where she said, you know, oftentimes people will have experiences and then the folklore is used to describe the experiences where most people think that it's folklore and then people have experiences because they heard a story. Mm-hmm. And it makes it that that element of the uh, of, of the pixies and the fairies that you were talking about really brings back that conversation because that that folklore aspect of it is very interesting. I agree. And it asks the, it begs the question, is is the phenomena changing or are we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something that she she brought up as well. Um, and we we had this discussion as well with um, Chad Lewis about uh, uh, the Wendigo, where it, it was one of those stories that the, the description of this creature changed again and again and again and again, depending on which people you spoke with. Um, but like there were always fundamental sameness about certain descriptions, but but the it was almost like the thought was adding to the the shape or the form that people were were seeing. Do you think that could be something that's going on here? I think it might be. I, I think it's more the evolution of us. You know, one of the things that I keep getting asked in tandem with that question is this. Do you think that this is more and more prevalent, the idea of this phenomena? Is it is it increasing? You know, Art Bell used to say the quickening. Mm-hmm. And is that happening? And I... I resist that. I don't think that it's happening more. I think that we, as a people, as a species, are becoming more and more sensitive to it. It's always been there yeah. in one shape or form. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it's, it almost falls into the, the, a similar category of you know, people saying, well, do you think there's more, you know, do you think there's more paranormal phenomenon or do you think there's more, um, you know, of, of you know, one type of animal or this type of animal or, or, you know, something like something even biologically based. And it's like, no, it's just, it it can be just a matter of the fact that, you know, people have more cameras or people are are becoming Mm -hmm. more conscious or people are becoming more aware that, that, you know, and so I, I agree. I think there's, there's a number of factors that are, are in, in play here that you might increase sightings and, and just the, the comfortableness, I think, of people coming forward because this subject you know, has been put on the table in a far broader way than it has been in 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 the past. You know, where you were saying how you were struggling with the, you know, your dad telling you to, to not say anything and, you know, don't tell anybody. Um, where now, you know, there there are these groups, there are people out there um, who who can offer some at least some support. Um, what would you, what would you tell people who are listening right now, who think they may have had something happen to them? How, how can they go about beginning to deal with this? Mm, Really such a simple question and such a difficult and complicated answer. I think it depends upon the person. Some people are ready to confront it. Yeah. Some people need that comfort of putting it behind them. I mean, take a look at just regular trauma in life. Yeah. You know, so many people just wouldn't be able to function if they had to relive it. They, you know, the thing about generations before us, you know, they lived through wars and lost their families and everything else. And so if they, if they sat around and talked about it forever, they'd never have built the buildings they built <laughs> in the countries they built. Yeah. So, so it's a difficult answer. For me, what it was is this. The need to know became greater than the fear to know. Gotcha. And when that happens, when that happens, then you must pursue it. Because if you don't, then you'll just drive yourself insane. Mm-hmm. I, I so get what you're saying with that, because I, I think I think it's so many times just in my life, not in regards to this, but in regards to just places that I've been in my experience where it, you know, you 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 think about something or you talk about something or you have an idea about something and then there's a, a point at which the calling becomes greater. And I, I've, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's it's so it's, it's so strong and it's such a it, it's such a pull 
that you're willing to move through the fear in order to 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 get to that end or get to that explanation. So I, I love that explanation. Thank you. Yeah, and, and it's so true. And and by the way, you use the F word, fear. And this is something that we didn't shy away from, but we didn't we didn't glamorize. Yeah. The fear is a necessary portion of this conversation. And anyone who says that they had absolutely no fear is probably not remembering the entire event. Mm -hmm. There is that fear of unknowing, that fear of uh, being uncomfortable, that fear of not being in control. It happens to varying degrees. There were so many people who would like to poo-poo it and then they would you know, just talk about their enlightened minds and ascendancy. Okay, well, that might be at the end of the equation. Yeah. But just like any kind of sport, just like anything in your life, you have to do the hard work first. Yeah. I so get that because that's one thing Mike and I were, we were actually having this discussion yesterday about that because, you know, I've, I, I would feel as, as I was listening to, or I've listened to stories over the years of, you know, people that seemingly just, you know, waltzed through it and it was some blissful experience. And I struggle with that. And Mike, mm. I was telling you that yesterday. Yeah. Like I said, my experience was I, I don't recall the feeling as much as I would like to. It's interesting. Like I can recall thinking I should feel afraid and then I don't remember anything until I woke up. So I don't know what I felt over the next few hours, if anything at all happened. So mm -hmm. um, th this is where my, where my actual fear comes in is do I want to dredge that up do i want do i want to really have a look at that i don't know if i do i'm i'm or maybe i'm just not ready yet that could be a very fair answer what i will tell you for me was this i i had no choice what had happened was that phenomena around me started to push me in that direction um as i mentioned that that sighting that I had, that very public sighting where there were all these people. Mm -hmm. And then there were several other things that happened in a very, very public way. Yeah. It was almost as though, I know this sounds egotistical and I don't mean it to sound that way, but it's almost like there was a time capsule in me that it was time to awaken or open. That doesn't sound egotistical at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't feel very egotistical. I felt and I dragged my feet. Oh my God, I was never supposed to be in this film. It was never supposed to be about me. I was never supposed to really contribute to it, except from the interviewer's point of view and the researcher's point of view. Mm. Uh, in fact, the interview that you see me um, do is at the very end. We didn't film that until the very, very end. And that was right after, like a week after we did the session, because all of the rest of the film had been done. Mm -hmm. And um, I did not want to. And I mean, let, and I'll, let's face it, you know, I tell my team all the time, I say, <laughs> you know, this isn't really a uh, resume builder. Right. You know, the NFL is not going to call me and ask me to <laughs> do some work for them now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. And that's a big part of it, too, is like I, I am having now a lot of things in my face, <laughs> exactly what you're you're describing. Yeah. It's like conversations like this are starting to happen to me over and over and over again. And this is also a very public thing that, that I do. So I think it is time for me to address it, at least in some way. You would do yourself a great service to talk to Debs. She'd be kind enough just to have a nice conversation with you. Or maybe you good people should have her on the show. Hmm. Um, she is one of the most loving individuals in the world and uh, a super, super good human. So uh, she could she could help you at least, let's say, take apart your question and make your own decision. Hmm. You know? The universe is so interesting because I've, I've definitely found over the years that that like I, and I as I say not having experienced this per se, but having other very strange things happen, and a lot of strange things happen to me. Oddly enough, around a, a really dear friend of mine and um, and New York City, and there's been a really strange like pull and calling, and it. I know it's a piece of my journey that I don't understand. Um, like I've had uh, a. a 
images or whatnot of, of these places. I've never been there. And if I look up that address, that's exactly what's there at that address. Like I've it's very, very odd things like that. And then just very strange connections with, with somebody who I know now who's in Canada, but used to live there. And it's, it's so interesting to me what's when I hear these stories, there really is, because since I was 14, I've not ignored it. It's been there, but I've not had like I've not had the resources to to investigate it further or anything like that. And it just hit the point like in the last year where I've thought, no, no, no. Like there's there's there was enough stuff that was going on around me that it was like now you you have to you have to find out the root of this. You have to figure this out. And so I, I understand, I think, um, the, the, that same sort of pull and and the way the universe kind of lines this stuff up. And it's almost like you can't you, there comes a point where you can't bottle it anymore. Mm-hmm. No, let me ask you this question, Morgan. If we were in a crowded room and I shouted your name, it's probably a good possibility that you would hear at least a portion of what I said and turn in my direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something's calling your name. Yeah. Something. This is all about communication, all of it. And this is what I've learned is in every one of these cases, it is some sort of communication. For what end? This is what I'm still trying to figure out and what will be explored in my next film. But it's a communication. It's a tap on your window. It's a tap on your shoulder. Yeah. It's saying, listen, this is important for you. And, and when we think about that, when you say the universe, imagine this, imagine this, is that you're tuned to let's say the language French and say you're in a room full of English speaking people and someone is shouting in French, you would automatically turn. It's just common sense right. that you would turn and you would go and you would start speaking French with this person because you'd be the only one who could communicate exactly on that level. Well, this is what's happening is that there is a specific language for each one of us that's being triggered I'm not just saying words. I'm saying there's this is why this is why these ETs they don't communicate usually in words. They communicate in symbols and feelings and emotions and pictures because these things are universal. No matter how you say I'm afraid, we can get the meaning through a picture, through an emotion, through a sound. Yeah, I love I love the symbology you're saying. It's really really cool. Someone's calling your name, Morgan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I firmly believe that because the as I say the, I mean I don't believe in coincidences like you guys, but um yeah it's it's just become so so blatant and so yeah so I'm in in June I'm 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 going there, and it's it's funny because it's like I don't have I I've decided I'm not going to have a plan I don't have necessarily anything set in set in stone. Um, I've got certain places where I know I, I, I need to visit, but I've got, I've, I'm just letting, I'm letting that consciousness make the decisions because I just, I know it will. And I know that guidance will be there as long as I'm open to it. I think that's great. Before we go, your film, Alien Abduction Answers, where can people find that? Because I'm sure people want to watch now. Well, I, re- I really hope so. And, and, and the reason I hope so is I hope that it helps people. It, it, it was a blessing. And, uh, it helped me find a measure of peace making it. I hope people find some peace watching it. They can find the film. It uh, was released on May 3rd. Amazon Prime, iTunes, Kino Now, Video On Demand, um, YouTube. Yeah, it seems to be available everywhere. I'm looking at your website, rhinopictures.com, and that's R-Y-N-O pictures.com. So... That's correct. And if people need to talk to me, they can find me on Twitter or they can find me on Facebook. Um, and uh, that's actually how Morgan and I met. And I made a fool of myself on Facebook. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> well, no, I made a fool of myself to Morgan when we first met. Oh. <laughs> it was all meant to be because this, this, uh, I'm so glad we had this, this conversation. And it, like, I, I walk away definitely, John, with, you know, a, I mean, I had great respect for you before and I just, uh, just great respect for you now. And um, yeah, I would, I would love to, to continue this conversation another time because this is really interesting. Thank you very much. I, I, 
I really think that this next film that I'm building right now is going to be a, a, a real uh, breakthrough for a lot of people. And it's going to cross that line from parapsychology into the subduction and alien interaction. And I think it's going to be uh, a lot of people's eyes are going to be open. That's awesome. Yeah. We, we'd love to help in any way if we can. Yeah. Oh, I'm really grateful. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank yeah, you. you have our support for sure. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, John. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you both. Okay, you too. Thank you, sir. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the items process. We've all heard of a vision board, the place where you take photos and other imagery and pin it to a board you hang on your wall so that you can focus and allow those things to be delivered to you as you come into alignment with it. This is a twist on that process. When we think of vision boards, we think of visual things. But manifestation can be aided by the physical as well. Things you can touch, smell, and handle. With this particular vision board, find yourself a small box or container. Decide on an intention and think about the things that would be there if you had it. Visualize it in your mind. Don't be afraid to close your eyes and act some things out. Is it the smell of a certain candle, an heirloom, a piece of jewelry, a guide or book or item from a place that you'd love to go? Get clear in your mind about what your vision looks like and think about and see the items that might be relevant to your vision. Then add them to your items box. Not only is this a fun process and becomes a lovely thing to revisit in moments where you feel disconnected. But as you focus and when it's on the feeling place of these items, the more you will come into alignment with what it is you're envisioning. Remember, it's not about the things. It's about the feeling place of the items. Don't be a hoarder. As Neville Goddard said, think from the vision, not of it. You need nothing to be happy but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>